Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Joanna Bucknell and you are listening to episode three of Tate Scholar, which is the sister podcast series for Tate. Uh, again, I give pretty comprehensive introductions at the start of the discussion to the people that I'm actually having the chat with, so I am not going to repeat those. Uh, again, though, I do just need to say these were recorded back in August, um, but I think they're very much still relevant and they've taken a little while to get out to you simply because things have been a little hectic in HE and I work in HE as uh, many of you who listen will know and the people I'm talking to do too. So for various reasons, um, this didn't come out to you in August, but is still extremely relevant to the situation that we have here in the UK at the moment. And so I'm gonna let you get your teeth sunk into the episode and stop talking and let you just, you know, get at it. So enjoy. So hi, I'm here in Zoom land uh, once again. It's where we all seem to live now, doesn't it? The land of Zoom uh, with Dr. Gareth White, who is from Royal Central School of Speech and Drama, uh, Dr. Josephine Macron, who is from Middlesex University and Dr. Adam Alston, who is at Goldsmiths University and myself, who you all know already, uh, who's at the University of Birmingham. So hello and thank you so much for joining me. Uh, here on Zoom, which is where most of us, I should think, spend our time at the moment. Um, so what I wanted to do really was just kind of go around and get everyone to just introduce themselves. And I think we will kick off with Adam, if that's okay. <laughs> Hello, I'm Adam Alston. As uh, Joe said, I work at Goldsmiths. Uh, we're asked to say a bit about what our relationship is to immersive theatre. Uh, mm. Uh, primarily academic. Uh, I was drawn to immersive theatre because I was initially bowled over by some performances that were happening around 2006 to 7 and I was really interested um, in an inability to articulate uh, experiences and I, I thought that was an interesting provocation. How do you write about something that you can't put into words? But with time, uh, my, my interest started to change a bit. I became uh, much more interested in the material context that shape the production reception of immersive theatre. And also some of the political issues that surrounded. I, I started to get a bit frustrated with some of the claims that were surrounding immersive theatre, particularly with regard to audience empowerment uh, and so on. Uh, so that's my relationship to it. I think I'll leave it there. Thank you, Adam. Should we move to you, Gareth, next? We'll do it kind of alphabetically with my first name, which of course is, is really wrong as well, but it's okay. <laughs> um, hi, I'm Gareth. Um, I teach at Central School of Speech and Drama. Um, and yeah, how did I get to be interested in immersive theatre? Um, I think initially through being very interested in participation, um, audience engagement, audience involvement, um, uh, when making theatre and education in the 90s, and kind of gradually evolving this idea that the, 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 the work of getting people to stand up and join in is artistic work just like the rest of the show or the rest of the workshop or whatever else you're doing so that that was the the starting point for my phd which i started at the end of the 90s 
um, and it took a long time. So it was kind of overlapping the emergence, or certainly the emergence into my consciousness of a thing called immersive theatre. Um, I often say that while I was working on that PhD, I thought, oh, look, people are starting to do more participation. I'd better catch some of that before it goes away. It's probably going to be a passing fashion and is convenient for me. And I'll go back to where participation really belongs in TIE and whatever. Um, and it didn't go away. So um, the book that I published in 2013, which is not explicitly about immersive theatre, but does, you know, it's, it's certainly relevant in both directions, um, about audience participation. That's based on that PhD work. Um, and I've written a handful of other things that are more explicitly about immersive theatre or about the question of what immersing, immersive uh, might, might mean um, in relation to this. Somewhat sceptically at, po at points, because I think it's a word that's as, as misused as it is effectively used. Well, that's a nice um, point, actually. We're going to come back to that right at the end, I think. Um, and when, when I ask you, all of you, about the word immersive, which is what I ask every single person I speak to, and yeah. usually uh, induces eye rolling and, and sighing or <laughs> grinding and gnashing. But we're going to come back to doing eye rolling and gnashing later on, I think. Uh, so last but not least, uh, Josephine. Hi. <laughs> Hello. Um, okay, so yes, I'm Josephine Mason. I am a associate professor in contemporary France at Middlesex University. Um, and similarly to Gareth, although via a different route, I also came to um, immersive practices through PhD research, which was directly related to my interest as an undergraduate student and into um, postgrad uh, studies, as well as the teaching that I was doing in universities at the same time that I began to form ideas around what my PhD would be which was broadly speaking in experiential performance, the relationship between the audience performance, specifically where the work itself is acting on the audience, affecting the audience in non-intellectual ways, for want of a better way of putting it. So not that I want to be binary about it, but to th think about the practice that, that those traditions of theatre where it was about writing and talking heads and so on. And it's all about um, an argument being presented on stage. Brilliant theatre that exists in those realms. But the theatre that I had been very inspired by as an undergraduate was dance theatre practice coming out of the, the kind of Pina Bausch, but also the writing practice of... Samuel Beckett, Carol Churchill, latterly as a teacher of that, Debbie Tucker Green, the type of work where the, the writing and the practice itself is doing something incredibly physical. So it was the experiential performance that I began to try and find a way of articulating responses to from the audience perspective. And yes, like Adam, probably an academic audience I was thinking of there because I was thinking about my students and, and the fact that we were sitting in these sessions trying to find language to talk about work that we couldn't put into words. And there was a great beauty and a great discipline involved in therefore putting it into words. And I found that really exciting. Um, how you kind of fuse in academic terms theory and practice how the work itself is doing a lot of that uh, so it was experiential encounters that led me to immersive practice 
and yes, like Gareth, my PhD ended up evolving into my first monograph, which was synesthetics. Um, and in that book, I, talk, I talked about a range of experiential work, which included this um, very physical writing practice, as well as dance theatre practices. But it also included the work of Marissa Karneski and Curious, that at that point were known as Curious.com, but Curious Theatre, Helen Harris and Leslie Hill, um, and Punch Drunk, before anyone kind of had written about Punch Drunk or knew about Punch Drunk. And it was as a direct consequence of that and what that, was, what that work was doing, and specifically the fact that that work was moving outside of theatre venues and really literally breaking the walls of the walls of theatre down that um led me to talk a lot about that work and eventually become aware of the word immersive being used in journalistic writing around that but also theatre companies themselves asking about you know having conversations with Felix and Max of Punch Drunk, for example, around what immersive is and whether that's a good term to describe the work. And so it evolved through that, then um, writing another book about that as a consequence. So yeah, it's my, my, my relationship to it is very much from the audience perspective, as much as I've talked about it in academic context. It's about what this work does to an audience, requires of an audience, how deeply embedded the audience are in the work, because if the audience aren't there, it cannot happen, you know. And I think that's something central to all of us is, is the audience. And I think that's something central to all of, all of that kind of work. I think immersive theatre is, is about the audience and the audience are at the heart of that at every point. So I guess it's not so surprising really, I guess that we've all come, at, come to it because of audience and because of thinking about audience and also thinking about language as well. I mean, I'm very similar. I started my PhD in 2006 and I was writing about experiential work and trying as part of that to come to a language to talk about it. And I, I applied some terms to think about just the audience. But while I was writing, the term immersive wasn't really being used. But by the time I'd kind of got to the end of my PhD, it was. <laughs> and so it's, yeah, I kind of, again, sit in that kind of funny situation of trying to find the language trying to wrangle with how do we express the unexpressible in the way that Adam was saying as well so I think we're fairly similar in in that respect as to where we've kind of sort of our interests lie and where we've come at it from and it is about people and bodies in in rooms with other bodies which I suppose all theatre is is that at the heart of it <laughs> and so with that actually that leads I think quite nicely into the first thing that I wanted to talk about because it is about audiences and during covid we haven't had any <laughs> and there haven't been able to really be any in a way that we are used to and in a way um that immersive theater i think relies on and so i wanted to get your thoughts really on what impact do we think that covid has had on kind of immersive theater and on that immersive community and on, on audiences and your thoughts really as to how you think and obviously the the obvious thing initially is that everything just stopped but I think we've started to see over the last sort of eight weeks or so things sort of coming coming back to life but I just wanted to get your thoughts and I don't want to pick on anyone so I'm going to actually stop talking for a moment and let you guys kind of jump in with your thoughts on how you think what you think COVID, COVID did sort of in in the immediate um, to the community of immersive theatre. 
think there's something to be said here about some of the rhetoric that surrounded um, digital and online performance that almost seems to be positioned as this kind of almost as being invested with a utopian dimension that this is going to solve all of our all of our problems and I think there's some really really exciting work uh, that's been happening over the last few months and I think some of the leaders in this area companies like Coney and Fast Familiar uh, have been making incredibly engaging uh, work that's been explicitly designed for dissemination in an online setting um, so I guess what I'm about to say here isn't to denigrate that work because I think it's important. I think it's opening up a vital source of revenue for, for theatre makers uh, who otherwise could well be, be struggling in the current context. And I think uh, formally and stylistically, it's opening up some really interesting avenues around interactivity and communality in a virtual space. And it's really pushing at the barriers of what how we conceive of what the virtual constitutes in ways that I think expose a really interesting and, and quite deep aesthetic issue in the study of immersive theatre, the relationship between immersion in a material environment and immersion in a digital space. However, <laughs> I think the other thing that's, that's coming off the back of this, uh, especially as we look ahead to a, a second wave of the pandemic, uh, and the impact of the uh, pandemic stretching um, into the months ahead is to with something quite simple, which is the amount of time we spend sat in front of a computer screen or the amount of time that, that many people, particularly in the, in the um, information economy, spend sat in front of a computer screen because yeah, one, of the, one of the reasons why I think immersive theatre was, was so successful um, it's because with the, with the rise of the amount of time to which we're exposed to a screen, there comes a hunger for that which has nothing to do with a screen, for, for touch, for smell, for sensory engagements, for, for experiential stimulation. Um, and, and taking that to, to its extremes, of course, that's one of the things that, that, that one is generally deprived of. Um, when relating uh, to a performance through a screen. But when you spend sort of seven hours, maybe more, uh, in front of the same screen and in the same room in a condition of lockdown or semi-lockdown, and then you spend an hour, two hours, sometimes three hours in an online performance at the end of the day, it starts to feel a lot like work and the rest of work. So sometimes what these performances can do, apart from all the kind of musculoskeletal issues that can come with overexposure to, to a screen, is just make you really fucking exhausted. Yes, <laughs> yes. Tired. And it, it does have uh, quite a physical and, and cognitive effect on, on how we engage with people. And, and unfortunately, I find I sort of being, I, I'm increasingly disincentivized to want to engage with performance in this way and on the one hand maybe this is going to result in um, a fantabulous orgy of immersive theatre experimentation in inverted commas once all of this is over but of course that's just not how things are going to work it's going to be a very graded end whatever that might mean to this yeah. process it's going to be very very gradual uh, things will be introduced by means of experimentation i mean the government's come out with this 
uh, uh, incredibly vague five-step plan. It almost sounds like it's trying to come off some kind of addiction. Maybe it's an addiction to the screen, mm -hmm. uh, whatever it might be. There's, there's not going to be that explosion of experimentation. So, so to sort of sum this up, I think the real uh, point of interest in the months ahead will be the relationship between a digital realm that has got people extremely excited and some of the European ambitions that are surrounding that digital realm and how that relates to a potential return to um, uh, physical intimacy, to sensory stimulation and live material. It's about how that relationship plays out, I think will be very interesting, very difficult predict to predict. Um, but I think, I think the tiredness, the sense of exhaustion uh, that, that many people have experienced uh, in relation to these online performances um, will come to play an increasingly significant role. I agree. And I've, I mean, I've spent, I don't even know how many hours now in front of Zoom, which is kind of ironic because obviously we are currently uh, also in Zoom. And I have been to some amazing and really interesting uh, and clever performances like Coney, for example. But it is fatiguing because I spent all day at work looking at small boxes with small faces in them and conferencing and now in performances. And I am finding it fatiguing and also there's a sense there's not that same you know at the end of it I shut my laptop and I kind of go oh because one of the things I, I miss and I loved was the bar and often I always have to leave early because I don't live in London so sometimes I'm rushing off but at least I usually get a few minutes at least to talk to other people who've been through that experience too and so it's not even just kind of the experiential performance itself it's it's that interaction and i know that everyone leaves the zoom open so you can kind of do that but it's i don't know there's something that's just not it's not the same <laughs> you're right same thing and often in those experiences the reason why the bar plays such an important part is possibly because we're british and there's a drinking mentality that is a separate conversation to this um but it's also the fact that the bar is worked in as part of the experience particularly where that experience has been multi-layered where you need to come back and put peace stories together and narratives together or peace encounters together or you've had individualized experiences in very intimate encounters that require you just to have those conversations um, to, to make sense of the work. The work has actually required that there is some sense of communal activity that has, has been located around the bar, you know, as well as th that's part of theatre more broadly, isn't it? it is a, it, it's about community and conviviality and, and that's, that's vital. Um, I mean, I suppose for me, because I completely uh, obviously agree with everything that Adam just said in many, many respects, and what it, what it proved to me from the moment it went into lockdown and there were things like NT Live and so on. And I thought, and all power to theatre for the way that it did really um, actually prove the significance of, of itself as an art form um, in terms of establishing some sense of community and reaching out to, to people in their houses to try and create a sense of connection. And I think theatre was certainly doing that. Um, but what it, what my experience of that was that theatre doesn't work on screen ultimately, and 
actually in terms of any screen-based um, performance encounters I wanted, I turned to television and really good television that was being shared at this time. And particularly like groundbreaking television like I May Destroy You, where there's an inherent theatricality in that work because Michaela Cole comes from theatre and the writing particularly, has anybody seen it? I'm not going to do any spoilers. But no, not yet. It's on my, it's on my list. I'm halfway through. It's brilliant. Oh my God, it's a must-see. You've got to see it. It is so imp such important television, such important uh, theatre as well in many respects. The final episode is incredibly theatrical as it is incredibly filmic um, it's doing really powerful things with narrative with encounter with character um, mm. that was a really amazing piece of television and why I'm saying that is is I was very aware that that I if I was going to look at something for a screen in order to get out of that I've spent all day on zoom and now I want to have a um, a performance experience that allows me to leave the Zoom screen. Television was doing that brilliantly. Te television and cinema does that brilliantly. Yeah. The theatre that was being presented on screen didn't work, but the theatre that was being created for or had previously always been created for audio experiences, which is where it brings it back to the immersive argument, because there was a lot of audio stuff out there already, audio installation, um, immersive performances created, such as the Fuel with The Guardian or the Fuel with Guardian and Rich Mix, um, their podcasts around the body or around everyday encounters, really beautiful pieces of theatre that do what all good audio work and actually there's a connection here with what Darkfield does primarily where it's the senses are being engaged through your imagination the senses are being engaged through through hearing and that starts to um, exercise all of the other senses but it requires great skill in terms of the way that audio format is being used it's not just anybody can create it that's why there's a difference between an audio performance and a podcast for example both of which are important and have their place or an audio performance and a radio play an audio immersive performance and a radio play and there are of course crossovers and connections but they're doing slightly different things so there's something there in the in the power of audio immersion that was really effective um, and and proved that this work has something to offer theatrical experiences, offer audiences who are looking for something in a digital realm. Mm. Um, I think there is a broader conversation and perhaps we'll come to this about what immersive theatre is going to offer us now that we are moving out of lockdown and we're not mm. confined to screens and necessarily confined to audio experiences. And actually I think the, the um, forms and conventions and caretaking approaches of immersive work is, has so much to offer theatre in general, as, as Adam mm. already hinted at. Um, and I think that's where immersive theatre is going to come into its realm, because it already does that, stuff. as as does site-based site work, site-responsive work is doing that stuff already. Um, so perhaps we'll come back to that, but but that's kind of what, what I was really aware of. It wasn't about the screen for me, it was about audio experiences or other stuff. And I, we will definitely be coming back to that, and I think it's also worthwhile um, just 
noting that we're kind of not a, a, a typical audience in some ways. So, I mean, I'm still coming across, unbelievably, occasionally, um, people who haven't used Zoom before um, in doing things, which is just an absolute revelation to me. I'm like, wow, really? Never? Oh, my God. Okay, I spent my whole life on it. But we are, in some ways, a professional audience goers, aren't we? Because... And, maybe, and also because of our jobs, we spend all day on screens. And I think some audiences, maybe they're engaging uh, with online performances, don't have Zoom in their life in the way that potentially we do daily because we're educators, we're uh, working towards our next semester. We don't want to talk too much about that because obviously we're not in much of a position to either at the moment <laughs> with our institutions. But yeah, I think maybe it, it, we fatigue maybe more easily I find perhaps because of our professions and because we are our professional audience in a yeah, way also just before Gareth comes in because I can't sorry Gareth <laughs> say something here but there is but that's a really important point that you pick up on Joe because there is great privilege attached to being able to you know connectivity to be able to connect to zoom it's not just about being able to to use technology it's about having access to it in the first place so yeah. there are the the arguments around theater and privilege and so on uh, exist with zoom and online streamed performances mm -hmm. um and that in itself is something that we mustn't assume we mustn't assume people are able or willing to use this stuff and there are also political problems around using a lot of these platforms um ideological problems around using a lot of them but also there are access problems and challenges yeah. I mean even just where I am I'm in the countryside and our internet is not stable there are certain times of the day when I get kicked off about every two minutes because we just, we just don't have that kind of internet access and I think you're right I think there's a lot and this is something we've we've had to be very mindful of I think in, in our preparations for next academic year is bearing that in mind uh, in terms of privilege of access to software even access to laptops to pcs and all of that kind of thing and so again i think not only are we kind of professional audiences but you're right we're in a very privileged position in that we are have access to and are practiced at and are able to use some of these things that are available and i think you mentioned nt live and i'm the same i find it really problematic watching uh, recordings of live theater but actually for some people those things going out for free i think has been absolutely incredible kind of accessibility for people who don't wouldn't even necessarily be able to go from for many many re different reasons um to the national and so i've been really heartened by the fact that many theaters have kind of just gone here have this this is here for you and i think it has shown that moving forwards there are ways as well to engage with audiences that don't necessarily have access um to live performance even though it's not the same I, I think it still has has its value in in that way but we'll come back to some of these things i think and we'll let gareth he's very patiently sitting <laughs> listening to us so gareth. <laughs> well you know my answer to the first question is just getting bigger and bigger with the more <laughs> yeah. um um yeah tracking back to kind of first first feelings responses to what was taken away and what was made available in its place um, for me, the summer term this year was supposed to be spent making a piece of site-specific theatre um, with about 40 students. I was expecting a lot of my job to be kind of crowd control in re the rehearsal, but also in, in terms of how we make that show, which would have been for primary school kids. It would have been about getting two classes of kids into um, 
a Sidcup Manor House into a you know a, a, a building that's been a uh, a hospital and a registry office and a stately home and whatever. Um, I won't say too much about that, but that became um, a much smaller project. Kind of hived off a tiny bit of that that I was going to do um, with just nine students instead of that whole group, um, and they did fabulous work. Yeah, we made a we made a Zoom play um, for primary schools, um, and the students really picked up and and ran with this idea of making a piece for eventually well a, a piece that would be online but eventually designing it would just work with zoom and be on zoom um that would be theater and wouldn't be bad telly mm. um and alongside that of course as everybody's been saying there was this great effort to put theater online on yeah on screens and make it available but i didn't want to watch it i missed going out and going to the crowd, going to be in a crowd, going to a theatre, having that whole experience, sitting next to somebody I didn't know and rubbing shoulders and all of that being amongst a breathing mass of human beings. I missed that so much. I didn't want the secondhand version of it and noted all that you're saying about the privilege of access that I get by living in London and having a salary and being totally comfortable in those places. But um, yeah, didn't want it. Just like I don't want to watch Glastonbury on the telly when I don't when I'm not going there. What's the point? What's the point of seeing some you know close-ups of Kenya West when I want to be in the living field lying on my back? Um, so missing those crowds, missing being out amongst people, and missing the feeling of having my all of my senses provoked by an event, as opposed to just my auditory and, and visual senses and my mind in, uh, engaged has been really yeah that's the experience as far as my my art going um, uh, response to the COVID situation has been and that you know was really powerful in terms of not being able to be in that rehearsal room with the students mm-hmm. um, the, the feeling of directing you know the experience of directing a show on this chair in front of this screen um, it was really hard. Even now, when I when I log on to a Zoom session, because we use Zoom for all of that, um, I have I have a kind of flashback to oh, I've got to try and raise my game to 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 make this a rehearsal, to make this an encounter between people, to try to move forward with creating. Um, uh, a collaborative environment and creating um, an event that's going to be something interesting for an audience, etc. To do that rehearsal work like this. Um, I really hated it by the end, even though I liked the work that we did. So coming back to it for some shows, and I've only done a couple, um, felt like work. But what I think is productive in it is where some of these shows momentarily or kind of substantially are actually making work that's about that they, they it turns out to be work that's about this mm-hmm. points taken about the privilege of having access to um zoom and computers and everything like that but actually a show like coney's telephone mm-hmm. it, well that's about this it's for us it's for this mm-hmm. community that are using this this machinery 
Mm. Um, and it's a, you know, a lovely, sensitive, light touch piece of work that's, you know, it, it's now, it feels entirely about this moment. I don't know whether it's, mm. it's, it's development kind of starts from March and April onwards or whether it's got a longer history. Um, but I think there's, there's something really interesting going on in there. And it expands perhaps that sense of what theatre, participation, immersion, etc., is what those things are because they're addressing the physicality of sitting in front of the computer. They're addressing the communication that happens between us, the possibility of a communication between us in that embodied sense um, that's going on now because I can see you nodding and blinking and narrowing your eyes, etc. Um, I'm doing a little bit of writing at the moment. That I'm, I'm trying to hook into the idea of the eye line because um, you're all looking at me now, but actually you're looking down at my chin. I know you're looking at me, but I don't get the same feeling of you looking at me as if we were in physical... There you go, Adam's doing it, and I'm looking back into Adam's eyes, but he can't see me because he's looking at the camera and I'm looking at the camera. Um, the... You're assuming we're not looking at your background, Gareth. <laughs> <laughs> you can't just be looking at... <laughs> yeah, the drill, the washing machine, etc. All the things that are in my peculiar home office. Um, I have got my pants hanging up for once off and start these zooms and realise, ah, I just put the washing up in here. Um, yeah. Another piece I saw, Uninvited Guests. Yeah. Love Letters Straight From Your Heart. Does anybody yeah. know the piece? I think it existed as a yeah. three-dimensional piece and was reconfigured. <laughs> Um, I don't know the names of the performers in that, but the woman in the company um, does some quite long passages where they, you know, they, the premise is that they ask people for to, to ask for requests and say why they've requested certain pieces of, pieces of music and why they mean things about those people. And they, they kind of riff on the stories that have been told. They play the music, they dance to the music, and they're looking into, the, into your eyes. And I can see that actually they've, oh, they've decided this is the technique. They're going to look into the webcam um, in their solitary space, but they, that becomes more like that kind of eye line, eye connection. But they're not getting the feedback on it. They're performing for it, and they're not getting the physical feedback that you normally would go for in that moment as a performer. And I think there's something really kind of interesting going on there in terms of what's the performance technique? Is it simulating or imitating a thing that we would normally expect to be happening mm. for real, so to speak, that we know is fundamental to performance in all its shapes, that it's an embodied experience. So what's the embodiment that's going on right now? I, I think you know, there's interesting stuff going on theoretically in terms of how we might unpick moments like that, but also in what this work is doing, because it's it's unpicking or reimagining this situation of sitting in front of a screen all day, or just for key bits of our work or our social life, or mm. for the you know perhaps the only human contact we get for for some people, especially you know at some points over the last three months, four months. Anyway, that's enough for me for a moment. Yeah, no, I'm taking myself off mute. <laughs> we can do that in real life. Um, 
I think that's a really interesting point that you, you that you've picked up on there because for me there's so the the reference to Coney I think Coney have always had community and connection at the heart of their work and their work is the the philosophy behind it is about exploring these practices and processes and and um thinking about the ways in which we connect or the ways in which we make decisions or whatever it might be um and so that's why that feels like there is something important going on with what they're evolving there and that's probably what it feels like is to me in terms of some of this work that is being immediately put out there by some of these leading names in immersive practice is it feels a bit like an R&D phase um it's both responding to and in, in an incredibly actually I do believe in a, in a very generous way and it's also thinking about so how do we what do we do now how do we, we're artists and all artists work according to the strictures that they are required to work with um and i because i did the lundal and zeitl piece as well i don't know whether any of you did it so they they turned um symphony of a missing room into an app so that you could recreate symphony of a missing room in your home and take the ideals of um that piece which is a philosophy philosophical exploration as much as it is an artistic experience um for those that haven't experienced it it kind of the, the biggest question it's kind of asking is where do you experience and store art where it what is your experience of art mm -hmm. um and the app is lovely and it enables you to think around those things and it's got the beautiful voice in the background and if you've had the experience before in a physical realm then you, you can remember those experiences that you had in the physical realm but if you are at home doing it with your 11 year old son who's got sweaty palms and is totally up for the experience but also has sweaty palms doesn't have martina's beautiful or that their dancers their, their performers highly trained highly disciplined approach to what that work actually requires in order for you as the audience member to be to move through this this and, and this is this is what is important. It's about the where the art becomes the encounter and what is required for the encounter to occur. And that is it, it's the discipline and the technique and the caretaking that is involved within that that makes that happen. So actually, with that work, it is about that 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 particular experience of touch and that particular experience of space and that particular experience of your body moving through space, whatever that experience might ultimately be, because I know Adam and I have had very different experiences of that work. One of us felt liberated, well, of their work. One of us felt liberated by that work. One of us, Adam, became very aware of the presence of risk within that work. Um, but in terms of doing the app at home with my son, I was just very aware of having an experience with my son, which was quite funny in the end, but it was just a lot of sweaty palms and not really, you know, and <laughs> I, I'll hold on to my memories of doing it in the, in, in real life. Mm -hmm. um, which isn't to dismiss what is occurring there. It's, it's to acknowledge that what occurs in this work actually requires 
discipline, it requires caretaking, it requires great expertise on behalf of the artists who are doing that work and willingness to be involved on behalf of the audience, coupled with um, an enabling that comes from the, the expertise by that, that artist. Um, so for me, there's something in that about what this is proving in R&D terms. It's not just about being in the theatre, it's about requiring expertise to make encounter happen. And that's, that's where it's, mm -hmm. it goes back to this idea of the, that which we can't put into words. Of course, we do sit around and unpack it and make sense of it and then try and articulate what those experiences were. And it does come down to technique. It, come, it comes down to caretaking. It comes down to doing that unique thing that your work does that enables that thing to be defined as immersive because of how that audience member is then engaged in the work and therefore engaged not only with the aesthetics or the, the um the, the, the experiences, the immediate moment, you know, moving, embodied, whatever they are, experiences, but therefore the ideas and the philosophies and the ideologies that are underpinning that work. And that's what that, that kind of proves, that it feels like an R&D phase, but it also feels like there is, um, there's great, there's a lot to be experienced in these moments at home, but, but actually it requires the artist to be present with you in some way. I want to come back to uh, a theme that you raised there, Joe, um, which is risk, but I want to steer it in a very different direction. Of course. Uh, which is the, to come back to the question of what impact is having on, COVID is having on immersive theatre but also potentially what impact immersive theatre will have on a post-pandemic creative landscape. Because I think addressing those two questions in tandem will necessitate engagement with risk. Uh, on the one hand, we can position theatre as being, as facing existential risk at the moment, which certainly in the words of someone like Sonia Friedman, for instance, at the, the hyper-commercial end of the spectrum, theatre is facing this existential crisis. But on the other hand, you have many commercial immersive theatre producers who are almost celebrating. I, I think often, um, not without issue, let's say, uh, this is an opportunity to take risks, uh, bring into play this, this speculative attitude that immersive theatre has attracted over the past couple of years, riding off the back of the success of companies like Les Enfants Terribles, Punch Drunk, Secret Cinema, um, and others. Um, sort of what I want to throw into the mix a little bit is, is two things. First of all, that COVID, despite the extremity of its impact on the creative and cultural industries should not detract from precarities and disparities that were already in place across the sector, but especially within um, immersive theatre. So on the precarity front, I think immersive theatre has frequently courted precarity, both in terms of um, the sort of spaces that it inhabits um, 
pop-up spaces that arguably, certainly Jen Harvey writes wonderfully about this, could be seen to undermine uh, a more sustainable arts infrastructure. Um, but precarity also in terms of the people who tend to labour on the productions themselves, uh, often self-employed, and certainly in the context of the current pandemic, if you don't actually have a stable income on enough basis, it's sort of very, it's very difficult to, to, to benefit from some of the schemes that the government has set up to support artists at the, at the present moment. So I think that, that's a really interesting issue in terms of the impact that COVID is ha having on the making of immersive theatre. Um, in terms of disparity, uh, as we look ahead, my suspicion is that those immersive theatre companies who are going to thrive are either those at the very top of the pyramid, if you like, that historically have benefited from substantive public funding, because uh, I think it will be difficult to attract investment, although for the safe bets, of course, they'll, they'll generally be fine. Um, but for those, either them or people with significant capital behind them, so people who have already been historically privileged growing up in some form or another, um, have uh, savings that the value of those savings will, will be decreasing with time if it's just sitting in a bank account. So maybe they'll, they'll want to sort of put some of that money into, in, into action a little bit, but it will, be a, it will be a historically privileged demographic who's in that position to do so. So I think it's only going to exacerbate inequalities within the sector. So you've got that on the one hand. The other thing I want to throw into the mix is about some of the rhetoric that's surrounding immersive theatre as being at the forefront of getting the creative and cultural industries back on its feet, that, uh, for instance, histrionic productions have, have a, um, an adaptation for an immersive setting of 1984 that's due to come out in April, I think it is, next year, and that the, it's, he's not called an artistic director, he's, called, called, he's framed as the CEO, a guy called Adam McKenzie Wiley, was saying that the, the COVID pandemic is going to enhance the immersive qualities of this performance. For instance, taking temperature tests of audience members as they go in, uh, and if, if, they are, um, if their temperature is too high in Big Brother style, they won't be allowed into the space. They'll be escorted off, escorted off the premises and so on. Um, there'll be people in hazmat suits. You'll be able to build in PPE into the production you know, punch drunk style with masks potentially. I'm not sure if they're actually going down that sort of route with the, with the punch drunk mask, but certainly the route of building PPE into the production, you know, it's, it's COVID friendly in inverted commas. And this is the crucial point for me, a point that often gets raised is, well, whilst the West End is stuffed because all of its audience is over 65, immersive theatre will thrive because all of its audience are young they're more COVID proof and they're more likely to attend because they feel less at risk. Um, I think that's a deeply, deeply problematic argument for all sorts of reasons. First and foremost, that uh, particularly at the symptomless end of the spectrum, it may be safe in inverted commas for somebody who's 
um, uh, a bit younger and feels a bit more resilient to go into that space. But if they end up contracting the virus and passing it on to others, that, that there's, a, there's a fundamental social issue in sort of valorizing this as a strength of immersive theatre. Um, and I think that, that sort of speaks volumes a little bit about the direction of travel that immersive theatre has been taking. Uh, and I also think that a lot of self-employed workers who haven't been able to benefit from some of the government schemes to the same extent as those who've either been furloughed or those who've been self-employed in a reliable way may feel compelled to come back into a workplace that's, that isn't quite as safe as it's being made out to be necessarily. Now, all of this is to say, I'm not, I'm not suggesting here that, oh, well, we should just put up a drawbridge and just stop the prospect of making theatre let alone immersive theatre. I think that would be a gross mistake and misunderstanding. It needs to evolve in a, in a much more symbiotic relationship with government advice. Government learning from the arts industry a lot more than it is at the moment, if you're looking at the um, cultural renewal task force. That needs to happen. There needs to be more of a symbiotic relationship. But at the same time, I think immersive theatre producers at the more commercial end of the spectrum need to be very, very careful about the kind of rhetoric that they're using, the, the ways in which this work is being celebrated as, as that which is going to get the industry back on its feet. Mm -hmm. And think twice a bit about some of the key points that it's framing as, as, as core appeal or core sites of attraction that immersive theatre has to offer in the months ahead. I agree and I've been at quite a few different conferences where makers um, have been there over the last couple of weeks and one of the things does seem to be oh it's going to be really easy to embed kind of all of the PPE sort of in world and the rules through world and I'm really concerned about that because the moment you are in world, in world there is also an invitation to push and play it though with those things and transgression like I, you've talked to yourself about this Adam as well and if you couch all of the actual safety precautions that you're required to do by law in world, is that also going to invite people to transgress them and encourage transgression? And that's, that's one of my big concerns about that idea of doing it in world. And it's okay, we can build it in, we can do it in world and all of those things. But is it maybe, I think, a little serious to do that in a space where play and transgression is encouraged, that, that scares me a little bit. We're all nodding. <laughs> yeah, we are all nodding. Yeah. Waiting for Gareth to come back with something there. Yeah, well, you know, any, any genre that you can put in some hazmat suits and some visors and some um, masks, any genre piece is gonna have a narrative compulsion to be pulling that stuff off at some point. The climax of that story is going to have to be somebody getting stuff splashed all over their face or somebody realising it's not necessary after all or somebody not being able to breathe and having to pull the mask off and gasp. Um, a lot of the, uh, the, com the more commercial end of um, what goes by the name of immersive theatre um, is about creating genre spaces, uh, genre worlds where we can we can play, and yeah, Joe B, you're absolutely right. The um, the that we want to play properly within that world. It's going to be a bit boring if we go into 
I don't know, some, some kind of apocalypse and we have to play by the rules of that apocalypse. Mm-hmm. There was a, a, a really quite, um, well, a very commercial, uh, unpretentious zombie experience, I don't know, six or seven years ago, can't remember what it was called, um, Generation Z, but maybe that's a television program. Um, but the climax of it was, was, yeah, for me, a delight. There was a moment where somebody was shot in the face in front of me, one of the dwindling number of soldiers that were supposed to be protecting us as we were running away from zombies around this building. And, you know, my heart rate was up. I was genuinely running away from these zombies, even though I, you know, knew they were just people with a bit of gunk on their faces. Um, but the lovely climax was when somebody was shot in the face in front of me and the blood splattered my face. <laughs> yeah. That's... that's for me, a really nice version of being invited into the genre world and in world, the right thing is happening to me. I don't have to get my arm bitten off. I don't have to um, actually change into a zombie myself, but just a little bit of that gory pleasure um, emerging at that point. And yeah, let's not have a boring version of it. That's not just, that's not just... Um, immersive theatre experiences though is it that's old school theatrical experience you know yeah. just but the you particularly immersive version of that is that I'm right there next to it sure and it reaches me and I can't really work out how they've done that without actually you know shooting well, it's the body isn't it that, that's what yeah. I've done um, my I did body's the... more involved than usually I was going to say, I think that's about the live experience, and that yeah. could be any theater, any performance, any live performance experience where you are able to be close enough to the to, to the, smell the actors, to get the blood <laughs> or the spit in your face. <laughs> that, um, because I think there is something in there about um, what uh, about what we what's going to happen now yeah. it almost feels like three for me it feels like a threefold and it will probably become multiple fold as, as i think it's true and say it really inarticulately but that what this has proven right in the immediate phase of lockdown it was very much as we've already kind of explored the idea of the online experience and um I had, because I was scrabbling around finding a lot of resources for my students, my MA students, who are immediately impacted by this with their their work um, and responded really creatively as a consequence to how you might continue to work in this realm because they're artists and they're, they're continuing to work with the strictures that they have to work with. Um, and, and the resources that I was finding that I was finding were related to exciting uses, as I've already mentioned, of audio immersive experiences, exciting uses of the digital landscape, which interestingly included the very much along the lines of the choose your own um, adventure storytelling. Lots that, that there's, as is the case with lots of immersive theatre experiences, whether they are large scale or, or very intimate in scale, um, ultimately that sense of you, you being responsible for your evening's experience 
um, but also that sense of you being utterly vital to the form of that work and, and present in the encounter relates to the choice. It relates to that sense of how I'm making the story work for me or not you know that, that that sense of frustration that comes out of that as well but digitally you can of course go back and very quickly get all of those different experiences going on there as well so there's something there about really exciting uses of the digital format and what the digital format offers and how it genuinely can liberate and how it genuinely can create intimate um immersive experiences that require your imagination to be exercised and therefore that's where any suggestion of sensual um, activity is being exercised as a consequence of your imagination actually leading it, your being the audience. And that being, on the whole, expertly or not, worked by the, the artists themselves creating that work. There's also another, the second fold to that is that idea of the work that explores the domestic, which has ex ex existed in theatre for a very, very, very long time. Um, Bobby Baker being a brilliant example of a practitioner who has explored work that is inspired by and presented within domestic settings and, and domestic experiences. Um, which can translate to experiencing that on the screen or thinking through how that might then, for the student, inspire, or the emerging artist, that inspire a domestic experience. In fact, one of the things that I was talking about with students was realizations of Beckett's footfalls or rockabye or you know, very easily realized in a lockdown situation because not only are they in within domestic settings and um, around the the domestic becoming utterly about this kind of human experience of the human condition but they are also about utterly combined physicality. The physicality isn't expansive, it's really incredibly limited. And the freedom that comes in the artistic expression with that, with that, um, with those limitations, which kind of reflects the lockdown experience. But the, the third fold of that is the what are we going to do coming out of this and how is theatre impacted by what has gone before? And it does relate to what we've already touched upon in terms of what we can learn from and not abuse about the immersive, mm. um, about immersive practices and those those practitioners who are working in this realm and actually to refer back to what Adam was saying, often underpaid, often not, not funded via, you know, NPO schemes or whatever. Um, but there's something more around the ways in which it's not just about the aesthetic experience. It's not just about the dramaturgical experience. It's about the operational structures that are going to be required here. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that of course will relate to you know there will be those works that are created where that is absolutely um fused as adam and gareth have already suggested where it might be about the masks it might be about that story being woven into that narrative becomes part of that audience experience and you're given your hand wipe at the end but it could equally be about the operational structures that that require intimacy that are about 
smaller audiences you know who knows the national could could reopen with every other seat has its own little mini bar and the way in which we are we're um uh, we have that meter distance is because we actually we no longer go and have put our big bags and and into the cloakroom and buy a drink we actually put our big bags right next to us in the seat we have our drink next to us on a stand um and that not only enables it to continue and there is a business model that is then required but i might actually copyright this one <laughs> but there is also distancing that is naturally enabled as a consequence so you have to buy your drink you have to go in and take you have to you know do the coat check thing um so it's there's all about the drinking dr mation always with me yes <laughs> there is something there about operational structures which which might be within the dramaturgy but don't necessarily have to be and the last thing i'd say on that and and sorry to plug another podcast here but i think your listeners joe would be really interested in this one if they haven't already found it for themselves um but it's part of the i don't know whether you um are familiar with this it's part of the um Oh, it's the, the podcast to the future, um, sorry, Postcards to the Future podcast, which is part of the Culture Reset program, which has absolutely arisen out of the COVID-19 experience. Um, it's a really vital program, and I urge you to, to look at it in that respect. But the first of the podcasts, which are discussions with artists talking about, okay, so what's happening now, and what about the future? And the first one is with, I think it's, it's Mark Reeson and um, Adele Thomas. I'll need to check that. Um, both working in Wales as well as, I think Adele Thomas works at the Globe, doesn't she? Um, uh, or elsewhere. Um, and working in site-specific contexts, already working in communities, already thinking outside the box in theatrical contexts. Mm -hmm. And much of that conversation was about we're already doing it it's not about changing it's already happening it's just about you now listening that wider world that hasn't listened before listen now and learn and and it, you know and let's move forward shifting theatre moving theatre and, and making it become something other both operationally and artistically and I think the big question um, and this is certainly, I know, on the minds of our institutions, as well as on the minds of people who are making work, is will they come? And I think that's, that's kind of this, the persistent idea. It's like we can make work, we can work in these ways, we can build these things in, we can work around them, we can be safe, but, w but will they come? And I think you're right, there's, there's always going to be the appetite, and of course we miss being there and being part of the community and having blood on our face and all of those sorts of things and I think we'll get back I mean I will get back to that as quickly as as I feel safe to but it is that question isn't it of will they come and I think a lot of the makers do have the assumption like Adam was suggesting that young people will just be more cavalier and feel more safe in just going into those environments but actually it's wider than that because even if you're young and you're healthy you don't know who these people go home to. Um, and I think people do care about their extended family. I think young people do care about passing it on to other people. Um, and so, yeah, I think that from conversations I've been having with lots of different uh, folk, 
that's the big question like we can we can do this we can we can work in these ways we can make this work but the question is is will they come and will our our many of our actors and our performers be left because like you said adam there's been a precarity before all of this and many people have not been able to just sit and wait i think for things to come back and aren't in a position financially to sit and waste again to, to wait so may well never come back to it and I, so i think this is there's a really complex uh, series of dimensions that come to this will they come and i think that that sort of leads us into talking probably i mean we've talked already a lot about online um, performances and how we feel about that and, and how we've encountered or not encountered them and i think now if we can just sort of slightly shift to go okay so so what's next really and i think for me, it's very much about will they come? It's about will they come in terms of our, our work? You know, will our students come to us? And if they do, what will that look like? But also in immersive performances, you know, the shows will come. I'm absolutely convinced. As Adam said, especially at the commercial end of things, I think they're going to be back up and running within a matter of weeks from things I've heard. Um, but will the audiences come? What do we think about that? I think, I think abs absolutely, because I, there's, I, I'm not quite on the same, <laughs> maybe unsurprisingly, um, bandwagon as, as Sonia Friedman with, with um, framing of the creative and cultural industries as, as suffering an existential threat. So mm. one thing earlier about, you know, that framing, that's, that's it's not really, well, what I believe at all, I, I think the threat it faces is that it's going to end up looking a lot more homogenous than it did before in terms of the people who are empowered and enabled to make work and to go to work. Um, there'll be a willingness to uh, diversify things like style and aesthetics and thematics and so on. Um, but I, I just don't, I just don't see there being a widening of access, a widening of participation, a widening of inclusivity, unless there are specific measures instituted to support those things. And I haven't yet seen enough evidence from the government to suggest that that's anything like going to be the case. Uh, there was a tweet that somebody put out yesterday. Uh, somebody who had it on good authority having attended a meeting with Dominic Cummings that Dominic Cummings turned around and said something along the lines of and please excuse the misogynistic language as a, as a warning that I'm about to about to use but Dominic Cummings said who cares about the fucking ballerinas you know if that's the attitude of people in that kind of in that position of power first of all it's completely unsurprising that, you know, that, that sort of response is not going to come as a surprise to anybody. But I think we need to be really realistic about the, the bigger picture here that sits beyond a one and a half billion pound support package about where that money is going to go and what's going to come after it. So to come back to your, <laughs> sorry, that was a bit of a rant, but to come back to, to your questions, will they come? Yes, I think that they will come, um, provided... <laughs> But we recognise that the people who go and the people who are empowered to make the work, it's, it's going to be a regression, I think, rather than a progression. And the other thing to say here, I'd throw another question into the mix, not just will they come, but where will it be? Um, because 
theatre buildings that are expensive to run as theatre buildings are going to be hit really hard. But we're also going to have um, a lot of empty office blocks uh, in the centre of capital cities. And um, certainly entrepreneurs who are willing to sort of take a risk, if you like, might find themselves able to take advantage of this situation. So mm -hmm. we end up seeing immersive theatre almost being centralised as mm -hmm. an art form that's able to capitalise on the, the, the repurposing of these otherwise outmoded spaces or, or junk spaces, as they might otherwise be called. Um, so I think that will be, I think that will be likely. Well, it's already as, been talked about in, in some of the things I've been to. There's already a kind of glee that there's going to be more space available because I think um, the city was cottoning on to uh, the kind of glut of spaces that we saw after in about you know 2008 onwards and that was becoming more and more rare to find those kind of found yeah. spaces and I think there is a real glee now with the idea or the prospect of there being a lot of empty space in central or south central London and it being cheap and being able to get inside there so I think you're exactly right and I think it will be a, from things I've and concerns I've been hearing from practitioners who make more kind of ethical based works, there is a massive concern that we're going to just slide back 10 years and all we're going to see is work that is really expensive because of limited capacity of audience and a really undiverse range of performers and of audience again. And I, I, I share your concerns there, Adam, very much so. I think it's going to with the issue of glee about those the, the, the disused office spaces for instance mm. obviously that comes with not just a caveat but an issue that should be pulled front and center as to you know what what, what are the costs surrounding that and those costs or what is it that will, will, will enable immersive fear to thrive in, in that sort of context it will be the diminishment of of um uh, the infrastructure itself. Mm -hmm. The only way you're going to be able to protect um, a, a much wider infrastructure, buildings, capital and so on, that supports the production of theatre and other events across the creative and cultural industries is if you have robust, uh, not just robust financial support, but sound guidance. And certainly if you look at the composition of the cultural renewal task force i've got serious questions about the robustness and soundness of that guidance first yeah. first of all there's a massive issue with diversity uh, on that task force the only non I, I, I may be wrong about this but um from a quick google earlier to double check the only non-white member of that task force is a footballer called alex scott who seems fantastic um, and she's also a, a commentator. It seems fantastic, but one wonders if they're, if they're best placed to, to advise specifically on the renewal, to use the government's turn of phrase, of theatre and performance in the widest possible sense. And the person who's leading that task force is a guy called Neil Mendoza, who's an entrepreneur. Well, it's actually it's chaired by Oliver Dowden, but the, the, the so-called commissioner for cultural recovery is this guy called Neil Mendoza, whose background uh, is in banking, finance and so on, publishing, corporate partnerships. And it's given that that sort of background, it does, 
you can see why he's been appointed to that role. It absolutely accords with the um, with the pressure that the Arts Council, for instance, has been put under to move in a particular trajectory with regard to mixed economic funding and embrace of the private sector. Mm -hmm. There's some opportunism here that I think goes with the, uh, um, the appointment of Mendoza to that particular role. And also he's been very, very blunt uh, about um, uh, the need, in his uh, words, for theatres to embrace the digital moving forward, so this is negotiable. And I wonder how that's going to sort of play out in the, in the years ahead. But to, to sum up this, this subsequent point, the only way that uh, theatre is going to be saved is not just through the appropriate and ethical allocation of robust public support to ensure that it can stand on its own feet, but it's also going to need good guidance. And I just don't think, I don't think the guidance is there to ensure, certainly as far as the immersive theatre is concerned, but I don't think the guidance is there. Um, no, I agree. I, I share Adam's scepticism. He's frozen with rage. Oh no, you're moving. Um, uh, <laughs> share Adam's scepticism entirely about what the, what the, um, governmental and regulatory um, support for the industry will be. Um, I wonder if there might be, I don't want to talk about flickers of hope, but there might be productive things that will emerge out of the situation from other directions. Um, you know, it will come back. We will lose people along the way. The, the threat is who we lose. What we lose at the Sonia Friedman end, you know, an existential threat to Sonia Friedman is losing, you know, half a dozen major theatres. Um, but the commercial theatre su surviving in more or less the same form. Um, an existential threat at the level of the small companies that we're, smaller companies we're interested in and the you know, innovative artists we're interested in is the people who who just yeah can't do it this year and never come back um we're certainly going to lose the potential of a whole lot of people and the expertise that a lot of people have developed but it will come back and the audiences will come back there's always an oversupply of artists and performers and i think with audiences the, um, there will be plenty of people who are itching to get into spaces and see things. I went to the National Gallery on Monday, signed up for the Titian exhibition. I'm not interested in Titian remotely, and I yeah, wasn't surprised that I didn't particularly enjoy it, but I still loved shuffling around with a mask on my face and meeting some old friends, you know, the Rembrandts and the Caravaggios and the Monets, and et cetera, just being there. And it, was, it wasn't full, but there was a queue at the door and it was as full as it was supposed to be. They weren't, they didn't have a problem selling their tickets for a Monday afternoon. Um, but I think there's, there are other interesting energies going on. Um, the protests we've seen over the last few months are um, a massive upsurge of energy and that's getting diverted into creative work as well as into protest. And it's risky. People are gathering in on the streets um, while the, the helicopters circle overhead um, and they take the risk of um, spreading a disease that's a, as, that 
they probably know is a threat to them and their families and they're in danger of taking it on, but they're taking the risk. Um, and people are partying. Yeah, clubs, informal clubs are popping up on streets and in parks and wherever. There's, there's, um, there's an underground party scene developing in a way that us old codgers might look at askance now when we might have been enthusiastic about an underground party scene when it was only rebelling against an authoritarian, um, uh, yeah, uh, big brother government. But now we might be on the side of the big brother and, and want things to be done safely, but still there's an underground in perhaps the way there hasn't been for a long time, a genuine underground. And I wonder what's going to come out of that underground, whether the, the political energy and the, the, the impulse to gather and to have fun despite um, the risk and despite the uh, disapproval of society at large is actually going to become a creative scene that we haven't seen for a while and where that might overlap with performance as well as with, you know, music and drug taking and political change and whatever. I don't know, you know, no idea whether there's actual connections there, but I just think there's this interesting moment is going to produce things that we don't know about yet. Um, and that's as interesting as, um, and as important, it will be as important over the next few years, perhaps, as what fails to happen because we have a bunch of uh, irresponsible, ignorant um, and philistine charlatans in charge of the country. Yeah, and we know, don't we? Sorry, Joe, just very quickly. Historically, we know, we know disruption brings change. We know that this kind of friction, this kind of rubbing up against everything is where everything exciting bubbles out of, always. And, and, and there's no way performance isn't going to be rubbing up against that in one way or another, especially with the broad notion of what we all probably perceive as performance. <laughs> so, um, that's so Joe, yeah. no, no, that's, that, that's so true. And to kind of the, to hold on to that idea of the flickers of hope, um, you know, to kind of stove that, to, um, bring the bellows to that the and also to refer back to Adam's point about who do we lose and you know that's a a very important concern but also in light of what Gareth just said but who might we gain particularly in this moment and actually and maybe this is my own hope my own flickers of hope in this but i feel there is more power in who we might gain and how we we could actually use um how the artists and the activists and the audience might make the change happen and mm. we've got to be part of that we can only do our bit in that respect and yes it requires us to vote out the Tory feckers, particularly if Dominic Cummings said that, and that's just proof that we have to do that. Um, and we have to seize that and also understand that it kind of goes back to the, so we're all, everybody's up for the going and getting a, a cheaper meal that's supported by the government, you know, let's go out and make the restaurants um, be able to open again, quite rightly. 
people need to be aware that it's their taxes that are funding that it's their taxes that are funding their ability to get a bit shaved off their meal in the same way might there be a scheme that could be run that is a you know we'll buy your first drink she says referring back to the bar <laughs> or we'll we'll support we'll support half of that ticket we'll support you know that there, there could be an alternative that comes into play in order to engage with live experiences and actually it doesn't it i, I don't care if it's it's about cultural experiences we can support those experiences whatever your cultural experience of choice might be um so i think there could be something in that maybe if we push for it and argue for it and and you know get rid of Dom, dominic cummings for a start um but but there's also something in the fact that I think there is a desire to, um, I think there is an openness to what those experiences might be. And that's where there is also a flicker of hope. Of course, there are those people who want to experience theatre as it, well, I'm saying, of course, I don't know. None of us know. We're just all wanging on about this, kind of assuming that we might know something. Um, <laughs> But I guess that there are those that will want to have those experiences that they ever that they had. And actually, I'm all for that. I'm all for all of us having choice. But I'm wondering whether this might be a point of creating a way of working for a time being and then a way of establishing more choice and a way of establishing greater... Um, agency within that choice and greater thinking around what that choice means, what those outcomes are from that choice. Um, so I don't know, I'd, I'd like to hold on to that, the, the possibility of hope within that as well. I really like that we've ended kind of I, I wanted to sort of there's lots of other things um, I think we could talk about and we could talk for a very long time. Um, <laughs> about all the things are interesting but i like the idea of ending on thinking about underground party scenes and flickers of hope and flames and kind of future in a much more positive uh, light than many of the conversations i've been having kind of during lockdown and in the last couple of weeks so i just really wanted to thank you so very much uh for taking time to join me and to have these chats and it will be one probably of many future ones i hope <laughs> And uh, it is the evening as well, so um, I'm going to let you all get back to your various things, gin, wine, children, partners, dogs, um, but probably not parties. <laughs> or if you are sneaking off to an underground party, excellent. <laughs> that would be an interesting party in and of itself with the gin and the wine and the children and the dogs. <laughs> That's a barbecue, isn't it, maybe? <laughs> It sounds like every Saturday in my house. <laughs> and I was one of the generation dogs. What am I talking about? I also don't have a house, so I should be <laughs> I was one of the generation in the nineties that was sneaking off into the woods doing illegal raves the first time round, so <laughs> I probably shouldn't say that. <laughs> Very much underage too, so uh but you take risks when you're young, don't you? <laughs> So yes, yeah, so thank you so much for joining me and um, 
if everyone listening wants to find out more about everybody, um, you all have research profiles and staff profiles, and I know because I have Googled you before, um, come up very high up on Google, uh, on Google searches. So just type in names and you can find out about everybody. We all have, are attached to institutions, so have staff profiles, research profiles, and you can access articles, book chapters, and all that kind of thing if you want to find out a little bit more about everybody that I have been talking to, which I would strongly recommend. It will be an excellent time to spend your time reading. Anyway, I'm going to stop uh, whittling on now. I'm going to leave you with the idea of flames billowing and hope and people dancing and drinking in the woods. So thank you very much for joining me. <laughs> thank you, Joe. With that thank in their mind. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that third episode of Tate Scholar. Um, it is the last one that I recorded over the lockdown period in the summer. And so there may be a little gap now before a bit more content comes out to you via Tate Scholar or Tate Standard, to be honest. Uh, just trying to find the time. There are lots of you who've been in touch with me. Um, and would like to do some recordings and over the next couple of weeks I will be in touch with you to try to organise and sort those out because of course I would like to keep getting content out but it will not be regular across uh, Tate Scholar or across Tate Standard at the moment just because I have too many pressures on my time to be able to deliver something in a really regular kind of episodic way like I have done in the past but I hope you enjoyed all of those summer discussions and again, new ones hopefully coming to you soon, but I don't know when that will be. All I can say is keep your ears open um, and an eye on your subscription, and then you hopefully won't miss anything. And if you do want to get in touch with me as either a listener to offer feedback or as somebody I should be talking to, you can do that at talkingaboutimmersivetheatre at gmail.com. That's talkingaboutimmersivetheatre at gmail.com. And um, again, if you Google me, I'm sure you can find different ways of getting in touch. Uh, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Insta, all of that stuff. But I'm not going to put the hashtags up because I don't check those as regularly as I check my emails, which are on my phone and get checked all the time. So do get in touch with me. And until the next time, whenever that will be, bye-bye. Um,